0: Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our readers and listeners of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. Uh, With that, uh, we hope you're in a comfortable position and with your favorite beverage to enjoy the discussion. Uh, Before we get into the discussion today, we want to say thanks uh, for questions coming from our audience at Smith Weekly, including Joe S. Paul M. Chris T, Mike G, at Uranium Insider, Peter B, John Q, at Eric 101, and at Feeds Explorers. So today we are talking with James Sykes, Vice President, Exploration and Development of Appia Energy, a uranium and rare earth explorer focused in Canada and the Athabasca Basin. The company is listed on the Securities, uh, Canadian Securities Exchange under symbol AP and also on the U.S. OTC markets under the symbol APAAF. James, thanks for coming on. Thanks
1: for having me, Andrew. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So, uh, James, give us your background. Kind of give us an overview first of your background, and then I want to kind of proceed in sequence leading up to where you are with Appia today. So go ahead and just give us your background and then we'll kind of move up the uh, the timeline.
1: For sure. So basically, I'm a, I'm a geologist by trade. Um, I've been up in the Athabasca Basin for the past 12 years, which is in northern Saskatchewan. Uh, prior to that, I lived in Elliott Lake for, you know, born and raised and grew up there. My dad was a miner at the uranium mines in Elliott Lake. So I kind of have uh, uranium running through my blood, quite literally. And so when I moved out to Saskatchewan, I... Had a job with Denison Mines, and we, uh, part of the exploration team that uh, led to the discovery of of Phoenix and also Griffin. We prioritized those targets, and then yeah, those discoveries were made after I left. Uh, times uh, well, then I kind of moved on to Forum Uranium to go learn from one of the best geologists, uh, uh, uranium geologists in the world, Ken Wheatley, and so working with them. Uh, we were having a we we're having a good time but then obviously it was uh, 2008 and so the world crashed and they got me on to Hathor exploration which luckily had made a discovery that year and so working with Hathor I was uh, just doing a lot of core logging which I was used to and came up with a geological model that ended up predicting where the the flow of all uh, well, the geological controls the structures and uh, predicted where the next uh, zones would be which did pan out. Hathor got bought out by Rio, so I jumped over to Rio. Uh, did a couple of years there and felt that I just wasn't growing at the pace that I needed to. So found NextGen, decided to go there, and uh, yeah, I liked the properties that they had, which you know was part of the decision to go there. And obviously, we made the uh, the Arrow discovery there, so that was a nice big find. And then uh, following up on Arrow and NextGen. Uh, Eventually led my way into
0: Appia, which I've been here for the last uh, couple of years now, since 2016, almost three years. So I want to talk a little bit about NextGen before we get into Appia. Um, so kind of, kind of before we get to NextGen, actually, kind of what were your, what things worked out well for you uh, during your experiences with these other companies and, and kind of what, what did you find is, is maybe some failures and maybe things that fell apart throughout your experience?
1: It's oh, a good question. So what worked really well was just again because I was a, a young geologist at the time, I had the ability to learn from people who you know experienced and seasoned geologists, and not specifically just on the uranium side, but you know I worked with a lot of gold guys who came over to the uranium side, and they brought uh, some of their own flavors to to exploration. So yeah, I had a lot of good mentors. I'd like to say um, some of whom actually Irv Ainsley, who's on the Board of directors with Appia. Well, not the board, but he's an advisory to the board. And he was one of my first mentors, and um, guy's guy's brilliant. So having having being fortunate enough to learn from a guy like that has just been was great. Uh, what didn't work so well, I honestly can't say because a lot of these companies, you know, it was it was always good times there. We just uh, I just kind of like to grow and learn, and so if I felt like I wasn't Moving forward at the pace that I kind of wanted to do, then I would just find something else and find somewhere else with new people that I could learn from. So it was it was always a, a learning curve, always trying to better myself.
0: So uh, next gen, what what people in your view were instrumental in bringing that deposit to where it is today? Uh, there have been some folks that have departed the company, including yourself. Uh, you know, since Discovery. Um, what was your role there and, and where, where do you see the folks uh, in your view, what are the folks that were instrumental in bringing that discovery to where it is today?
1: So my main role there, I was the uh, the head geologist, I was the chief geologist. and so I you know came up with with targets. I also brought on the exploration crew. I uh, hired all those guys. Um, yeah, so basically, there were three main people really involved in that discovery. and That was myself, uh, Matt Schwab, and then our VP Andrew Brown. Uh, we were the guys who were up in the field. We were the technical guys. Uh, you know, we came up with the targets to drill. We prioritized them. Which the one that was Arrow was was our main target. We always wanted to get there since day one. And so yeah, the uh, you know that's I would say those three people were the main credits to to the discovery at Arrow.
0: And uh, so there, there's another gentleman, uh, Garrett Ainsworth, that used to be at NextGen as well, and he's since uh, left to go do some other things. I, I see he's trying to uh, get something going with Standard Uranium and, and they also a, a pool co, uh, MK2 Ventures. Uh, what was Garrett's role at NextGen?
1: Garrett came on after the discovery, um, even after the uh, – well, he I guess he came on that Second summer so we had made the discovery but when he came on he basically replaced Andrew uh, who was our VP so Garrett then became the vice president of exploration
0: okay and the the type of discovery you know NextGen gets a lot of credit for the type of uh, discovery uh, real you know deep down a, a place that folks really never thought was really possible because of all the other historical discoveries in the area uh, the popularity uh, surrounding the other discoveries. Uh, who, who was kind of the the guy who thought about the concept of doing uh, finding the the discovery that that NextGen has?
1: Well, in the concept type of category, like, uh, this is where I got to bring Forum into this, because if you look at where Forum Uranium was exploring between 2006 and 2008, they were outside of the basin. They were looking. Their model was looking for these routes to these unconformity deposits. And if you do some more work, um, you'll notice that most of the deposits out there—they're all—they're more basement-hosted deposits than there are uh, unconformity-hosted. So it's, okay. it's just been a, a misnomer of of the exploration or the, the, the geological model that we see in the Athabasca. You know, everyone calls them unconformity-hosted uranium deposits, and it's not technically correct. Uh, if there's a good technical term to use for them, they're actually structurally controlled uranium deposits. And so, where do all the structures really emanate from? They emanate from the basement. These are the main main structures that control everything. So that's you know, I working with Forum, I learned all this. Uh, being at Hathor, Hathor again, that was another basement hosted deposit. It was close to the unconformity, but it wouldn't, in the sense, it wouldn't be a classical unconformity. It was controlled by this major structure coming through there, and and some cross structures. So seeing that and and learning there, uh, you know, I had these models come into play into into next gen. So our target there, you know, wasn't typically just looking for uh, for the classic unconformity style. We were looking for a uranium deposit, knowing that the structures played an integral part. That's what we used our geophysics to find. Our geophysics. was looking for the basin-hosted structures, and that's that's what we used to target.
0: Okay, so uh, moving on a little bit. Uh, at what point did you end up teaming up with uh, Tom Drivers?
1: Back in 2016, so I got in touch with Tom uh, pretty early on in the year, and we just kept some dialogue going back and forth. Uh, so between between NextGen and and Apia. Um, I didn't have much going for myself I was taking some time off I've got a young family so I decided to spend time with my family and uh, you know just help out around the house and I had I've had these properties in mind for for quite some time even that kind of go back to um, to Hathor days and so I felt there was time to really get get back into the the swing of exploration I brought these properties uh, to Tom and you know he really liked uh, what I could Bring to the company. He liked the properties that I was proposing, and so again, yeah, we just kept this dialogue going, and uh, eventually we started working together.
0: So now moving on to Appia, uh, and we'll get to the projects in a moment. But give us a snapshot of the company in terms of the management team, the compensation of management, the share structure, and who are the major shareholders.
1: All right. So basically, management. Uh, there are well, Tom Drivis, He's the founder, CEO, and president. Uh, he Formed Appia back in about uh, 2006 when the uranium prices were getting hot. He had staked a large property in the Elliot Lake uh, historic jurisdiction. So Elliot Lake at one point was the uranium capital of the world. It's my hometown, so I'm quite familiar with it, uh, which was one of the reasons why I kind of focused on Appia because you know, anybody who would go back into my hometown, I had a lot of respect for. Um, so Tom went in there again, staked the property. Uh, they did some work between 2000. Eight to two thousand thirteen. Uh, now have inferred and indicated resource fifty five million pounds U three hundred eight one hundred eighty million pounds uh, total rare earths. So quite a sizable size. Uh, historic on the property has at least uh, two hundred million pounds uranium non forty three one hundred one compliant. So yeah, Tom had that property staked. Um, the other members of the, I guess of our corporate team. There's uh, Frank Vanderwater. He's our CFO, also the secretary, and then myself, who is the VP. On uh, the board of directors side, we've we've got some very experienced people in there, uh, Thomas Skimming who's had a wonderful career in gold exploration, uh, Doug Underhill who's also had a very long uh, career in uranium and, and also in rare earth on the commercial side of things uh, as well as working with the IAEA, Brian Robertson again who's had a long uh, career in in the industry, uh, he's now the president of Mexican Gold Corp, which has a quite significant find on their hand. Uh, Nick Bontis
0: and and uh, Bill Johnson, who's our who's our lawyer. Okay, and uh, what's your view to compensation? You guys are you know early stage explorers. You know there's not a lot of capital around in the sector yet. Uh, what's what's your approach to compensation, and, and and what do you have set up there now?
1: A little bit of both. Yeah, we're you know we're, we're all paid. Uh, well, the, the the three main uh, core members of of Appia, uh, Frank, Tom, and myself, uh, we're all paid on a per diem basis. Um, Tom, I think, has actually been rolling back some of his uh, some of his um, expenses uh, just to get the company going. You know, Tom really firmly believes in this company. Uh, we all have options, so we've all got that stake. Uh, Tom Drivis and his his party basically own. More than 50% of the outstanding shares. So again, Tom is very heavily heavily into this company. He's a firm believer in in both the uranium side of things and the rare earth. He you know he has, he's really likes what Appy is doing, and so he's got a lot of a lot of skin in this game. Um, as for okay. your other question about how many shares we actually have outstanding, we're still closing the financing. So well, we should be closing that uh, next week on the 15th. So we'll have a little bit updated then, but as of now, we have over 60 million shares outstanding.
0: Okay. Um, so moving on to another question, uh, a number of investors are interested in Appia. Um, they're looking for some better exchange options as you know, some are having difficulties with the Canadian Securities Exchange getting access. Uh with the company progressing at this point, are there any near-term plans to get listed on the Toronto Venture Exchange and perhaps upgrade OTC listing to a QX status?
1: We just recently actually uh, got onto the QB status for for the OTC. That was last year uh, in January. Uh, right now, we're, we're still trying to focus beyond the, the exploration side of things, and we're hoping that with some of the, the properties that we have, uh, especially with Alsa's Lake, where that's shaping up to to start looking like it's uh, going to be a bonafide uh, world class deposit. Uh, once we start getting those moving forward, then we will have a we'll have a much better look at going on to the venture or to the QX. But right now, okay. right now, just because we're, we're simple exploration, um, it's just more of a, a strategic and even economic. Um, it just makes sense for us to stay on on these uh, these lower tier markets
0: right yeah and i know that the cse is certainly a little bit more uh cost effective than the tsxv oh, much more. um so it's 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 i can see why you guys are are hanging out there and and uh so it'll be interesting to see how you guys kind of advance that and of course uh even even beyond that in the future uh kind of as sentiment improves in the sector and 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 the company continues to progress the recent the more recent high grade discoveries in the athabasca basin have been kind of in the southwest um Do you see the northeast as kind of being a better place uh, to be working at this point? And between the two regions, which one do you like better?
1: I actually like the whole basin as an entire entity itself. I I don't think there is one area better than the other. I still think when when you look at where most of the exploration and discoveries have been made on the east side of the basin, I still see a lot of open ground there. You look at what's been discovered in there since 2000 even. Like less than twenty years, and there's been a number of major high-grade discoveries that just were never thought of uh, five or ten years earlier. So there's a lot of a lot of under exploration and uh, underexplored areas. Uh, myself, I still think the the central part of the basin, although it's uh, much deeper, I think there's uh, a lot of potential out there. Uh, we had actually staked the property. Um, that was one of the properties I brought forth to Tom. Was uh, what we had called the other side property. Um, but a lot of the geophysics there kind of mimicked what I was looking at uh, with Arrow. I thought it had uh, great legs to actually make a discovery. Unfortunately, again, it is deep, and uh, you'd have to drill quite a ways to get to the to the basin rocks. But that whole central part of the basin is completely underexplored. Even the north end of the basins is underexplored, and there's uh, there's there's quite a ways to work.
0: Do you, do you think the East Side has kind of more infrastructure at this point given the given the developments and the and the mines well, already in place there? So, absolutely yeah, yeah I, I kind of figured the same thing just kind of taking a look at it and considering the locations. So uh, along that along the lines of the the other question there is the Athabasca basin region your favorite jurisdiction for uranium and do you believe other jurisdictions compete in other ways in the context of timing less red tape and speed to market?
1: Yeah. Again, every jurisdiction has their own pros and cons. Um, I do love the Athabascan. I think it is the primary area. But I'm, I believe that grade is king. I'm one of those type of people. Um, (laughs) Before I actually went on to, you know, to starting my career in in uranium, I worked as a summer student over at Red Lake. So I got to, I got to see some of their high grade gold. And so I seem to have been around. high grade commodities for, for quite some time throughout my whole career but seeing that gold there at Red Lake really put a lot of things into into perspective for me like their you know their average grade in that high grade zone is 2 ounces per ton whereas you look at the the average grade of gold it's 1 gram per ton so you know these guys were mining um their margins were a lot lower than than what you'd do for a 1 gram per ton operation so you know, very early on in my career i kind of saw that as being you know that's the way to That's the way to get a mine going. You need something that's high grade, uh, something that can move forward rather quickly. And the Athabasca, again, that's world class uranium grades. Nothing else compares to it. But I do like some of the other areas. Yes, Um, I I like the African projects. I like some of the African areas. They aren't as high grade, although some of them, some of them are pretty feasible. Um, But there's a lot at at surface. But they also have um, some of these areas have some. Jurisdictions or some some governments that really work uh, well with them, and so they have uh, they have a lot of things going for them. Um, I'm also a fan of the the American operations, especially with those uh, the uranium vanadium plays in the sandstone. I think those are those are some some nice deposits as well. And with some of the technologies that have come out or recent advancements, such as uh, ablation, you know, it's uh, definitely a, a good way to go about. To go about extracting uranium and vanadium from the ores, and it's uh, much more cost-effective in that, in that regard.
0: Yeah, well, I appreciate your, your comments on the other jurisdictions and, and so forth. And uh, so uh, speaking uh, to Appia's uranium properties, uh, when are you planning to progress uh, new work on some of the uranium properties, and can folks expect news on these properties in 2019? Where is the focus going to be in terms of project priority?
1: In 2019, well, we've, like I mentioned earlier, we are just uh, currently trying to to close on a raise, and so with the funds that we raise from that, we will be looking at, uh, you know, spreading over some of our properties uh, on the uranium side of things, but also back onto also Lake. Uh, on the uranium side of things, we will be, well, we're pl- we're in the planning stages of it right now, to to go and do a drill program over at Loringer, which is. I guess one of our main, uh, main uranium targets we drilled back there in 2017 and we had 6 out of 7 drill holes hit. Uh, you know, it's very encouraging. Uh, we've got a lot of number of of targets that we'd like to go chase and, and see what's down there uh, again geophysical targets that really mimic other high grade discoveries. So, uh, you know, we, we think we've got some got some very um, exciting targets that we need that do need testing with a drill hole. So, we will be planning on that and Hopefully we'll we'll get to that um, let's say February March type area. Uh, there's also another project, North Wollaston project, that we have that we'd like to advance through uh, some modern recent airborne geophysics. So there are boulders and outcrops at surface there that do have high grade uranium, and so a nice radiometric survey would help with that. But also EM and magnetics to put a little bit more of the uh, the basement geology into context would greatly advance that project. So we'll be looking at that as well. The, the remainder of the focus and the big part of the focus for the summer will be back onto Alsa's Lake, which is our high-grade rare earth project. Again, we've got a number of showings at surface. We've got the potential for more showings, both at surface and below the surface. So we really want to get that project um, into a, into a much further, well, into much more advanced stage. And so, with the, we'll be spending a lot of time focusing on drill efforts for that project. Uh, trying to get to a to a resource stage calculation, maybe even a, a PFSPEA type of type of uh, document as well.
0: Okay, so I want to pick on the uranium stuff for just a little bit longer before we go on to Elsa uh, Lake. Uh, so, do you see the potential for Laranger or Wollaston to possess a near-surface high-grade discovery? What, what do you see as the most likely deposit characteristics there?
1: oh absolutely I, I believe there's a good potential for a uranium deposit there uh, wouldn't be there it wouldn't be there otherwise um it's again I, I have a very simplistic approach to exploring for uranium um and you know a lot of that is is based on just geological models but also backed up with the geophysics and so what I see on on loringer um that's you know I, I see a number of targets there that do mimic. Uh, what we've, what I saw at Hathor, uh, what we used to discover Arrow, what I've seen at other deposits. So I, you know, I firmly believe that the right conditions have, do exist there, and we could be sitting at a nice, uh, nice uranium deposit there. Again, we'll never know until we, until we drill it, but that's, you know, that's, that's the sad thing about exploration. There's, there's never a, a 100% answer until you actually drill. It. But, uh, We've done enough work to justify for going there and actually to drill it. And with North Wollaston, again, this is this is an area that that I've had on my eyes since 2008. Uh, it's on trend with the Eagle River system. If you look at the regional geophysics, it's on this nice elongated uh, gravity signal, which you follow that, and there's a number of deposits on that on that same feature. So I, I think this is another type of area which. You know, you have to start looking at the structural plays. You have to start looking at the structural controls that host these deposits. And from what I'm seeing in the geophysics, uh, based on the historic geophysics and, and regional, uh, I see a lot of these uh, potentials that exist. So we just need to follow up with some more recent geophysics, um, especially with gravity survey. And, you know, we'll have a much better idea of the potential there. But as it stands now, the potential is very high for, for having a deposit there.
0: So I want to move on to Elliott Lake. Uh, so give us your thoughts on Elliott Lake in general, which uh, I think I already have a good idea what those are. But at, at what uh, at what uranium prices do you see Elliott Lake as becoming a focus you know, on an economical standpoint and, and certainly a focus for Appia? Uh, when do you plan on doing some work there and when might a PEA be in the works there and uh, some of the bringing some of the historic resources back into present?
1: Yeah, with with Elliot Lake again I do think Elliott Lake is a great jurisdiction uh, it used to be uranium capital of the world so you know before before the Athabasca really got going um, Elliot Lake actually supplied a lot of the uranium for um, for Canada power and, and and exports there's still quite a number of, of pounds in the ground there I honestly can't say how much there is but I can I can guess that there's you know there's enough to make it again we're one of the largest uh, uranium jurisdictions in the world. Uh, for prices if if somebody goes and reads our 43 101 uh, that, that was done in 2013 you'll see that the prices that they used for to come up with a resource they used uh, 70 seventy dollars a pound of u308 and 76 pounds a kilo of uh, rare earth elements so again these are kind of the prices that we would be looking at uh, that would have to be sustained for Elliot LA Lake to go forward and to get it going though um, Again, would monitor the the um, the uranium side of things and see how that market actually uh, starts progressing, especially with with what's just happened recently with the, the shutdowns. But the uranium market does have to come back. At to what price, I don't think anybody can can give a, an honest answer. But okay. right now, with the work that was done in 2011, 2013. Um, that was enough to keep that property in good standing for quite a while. So it's still in good standing for at least another five years. So we're not in any big rush to to get that project. To...
0: And and it's you know it's in a spot there that there's lots of infrastructure already in place and uh, yep. it's kind of an optionality type situation. And and of course when you guys did those you know the studies on that, of course the uranium price was was much higher at that time. So it'll be interesting to see uh what what the uh what happens of course with the market and sentiment going forward but it is a nice uh kind of a back card in your you know in in the back pocket there so um so so jim you know we get the production question often uh and uh we we have readers always asking about this an audience if there was an economic asset in the appia uh group of assets in a rising price uh, uranium price environment uh if there was some kind of a a PEA and a PFS and a decision to maybe go towards the development. Uh, do you see an operation uh, commencing, say 2025? Can you kind of give, just for the audience, maybe a rough time frame, realistically, uh, to bring an asset in?
1: Completely hypothetical. Again, Elliott LA Lake does depend on the price. So if if the prices we just if we saw the prices continuously rise and stay stable above 70 pounds. $70 a pound, then yes, we would uh, look at moving Elliott Lake. Because the infrastructure is already there, um, we, we've got a good understanding of the Teesdale Zone already. Elliott Lake geology is actually very simplistic and Teesdale Zone is shallow enough to, to actually put in a, a shaft. Uh, we're looking at about 250 meters uh, to put one in. So again, it's it's not very deep operation. So something like that uh, would be able to go forward. I'm not too familiar with the whole permitting side of things, so I don't know. What would be involved in that, and I don't know how long some of those would actually take. Um, But if we focus on the Athabasca again, we're looking at somewhat of a different scenario there. Uh, We're looking at we're looking at making a discovery that's near surface, something that we can open pit, and because of where we are, we're close to the infrastructure that is in place there. So we have mills already there, Um, even the the Rabbit Lake mill, which is currently on hiatus. um, Chemical just has it in care and maintenance. Something like that, we would be looking at perhaps toll milling out of there. So, in that regard, you know, if we can make a discovery on Loranger or North Wollaston uh, prior to 2025, the permitting side of that should be rather simplistic because it's just a mining operation and toll mill it through, through a chemical mill or even the Orano mill, uh, McLean Lake. Those are, those are some of the possibilities that we would uh, investigate. And again, they already have their permits in, uh, they've got all the jurisdictions uh, all the jurisdictional boxes checked and everything's good to go for them so again that's something like that it's just a straight up mining operation so to get going by 2025 if we can make a discovery this year i see that as, as actually being a possibility
0: okay and how, how do you how confident are you um working a work in some kind of a milling arrangement with either a cameco or, or uh, orano
1: i would see that as actually being pretty confident um i, I personally i I think I could. Uh, I wouldn't see any of them balk on it, especially the, the chemical mill. I think that would actually be a, a good operation a, and a good good cooperative agreement for, for both companies.
0: Okay, so uh, t- tell us. Uh, let's move on to to Alice's Lake. Uh, tell us about the rare oppor- or the rare earth opportunity there. Uh, what is the status of sampling permitting and a logistics plan for processing samples there? Uh, how is the access, and uh, is there something economical? Uh, at that, at this point, and if so, what are the scenarios being considered?
1: So with Alsace Lake, again, we're still very, uh, very early stage. I would, I would even still call us a grassroots exploration stage. Uh, we know we've, we've got at least seven zones, high-grade zones at or near surface. Uh, and these, you know, these zones host grades that are world class, and they're rich in the critical rare, uh, especially neodymium, praseodymium, and dysprosium, which are used in permanent magnets. So we, you know, we we, we know we've got value there already. Um, it's just a matter of how much size, and that's where some of this work uh, we're looking at doing this the summer comes into play. Uh, the permitting stages side of things, we are, you know, we're, we're permitted to do the work. It's Again, exploration, we're not pulling anything out of the ground yet. so we're still uh, we're still considered that. Um, on the sampling side of things, again, it's it's just a matter of doing some, some additional exploration. Uh, we do have some samples that we will be sending into, um, into the SRC lab for some preliminary metallurgy work. So we're going to look at uh, starting off with, with a tabling study to see how you know how they can handle the, the ore that we potentially have it there. All of the ore is basically the same up there it's it's rather unique it's it's almost simplistic in a way which is which is great so to get that uh, again to get that project we just need to do some some additional more work done on it uh, just to see how much we actually have there uh, we've unfortunately we've only just focused on a little little area but you know there was so much there that it kept us busy for quite some time uh, there are quite a number of other showings in in just around that area in itself, but also with the potential for finding more of these zones beneath the surface. We've again we've identified that we have uh, a lot of work to get done and a lot of that is going to be drilling. So we need to we need to start focusing on that. We need to actually find out how much we have there to to really get the ball rolling on that. Even right now, we could just go up there with pickaxe and shovels and just start taking away some of the samples and shipping them down to SRC and Because they're so high grade, uh, there's you know the potential margin off those is actually um, is actually quite high. That we could we could do a quick little standalone operation and and have some sort of revenue come in.
0: Well, it's interesting information. Looking looking out a little bit further, kind of big picture, how do you like the rare earth market at this point? What's your what's your thoughts? Is it pretty stable going forward? Um, give us kind of your, your thoughts on rare earths at this point and, and forward demand and, and uh, how you feel about pricing.
1: Yeah, I personally I see I see the pricing I see everything continuously growing. I don't see this uh, I don't see the rare earth side of things really slipping away. Uh, it's the main driver with today's rare earths are electric vehicles and and uh, wind turbines, so green energy applications. And that's you know the whole world's even even going this way. Uh, China has recently, uh, you know, they've kind of mandated that uh, their their car manufacturers need to start producing more electric vehicles, and they're they're going to actually stop um, some some companies from producing gas and diesel vehicles. So they're really pushing this whole electrical thing. Um, you know, they've committed to having uh, to having clean air, and so they're they're really pushing forward for it. The the rare earth industry in itself, again, right now is being pushed by that uh, by the permanent magnet stage. If you look at it through time, though, it's kind of jumps from uh, from element to element. Um, I don't see the I don't see the permanent magnet thing going away anytime soon. I don't even see it going away in the long term. I think this is a this is a market that will continuously grow. I don't see any reason for it not to grow. Um, will it be exponential? You know, I. I'm not an economist and I can't really say that. Um, I can just you know, kind of see what I see happening now, and it looks like everything is going to continuously grow. There are there are rumors, there are numbers coming out showing that, that China is now importing more rare earths than, well, they're starting to import rare earths because their own demand can't even meet with their own internal supply. So, again, you're looking at that type of situation, where if they continue on that trend, well, then you will need to get more of these uh, global deposits up and running. And so this is where we see that we see Ulsa's um, Lake being something that can fit into this global picture. Uh, more specifically, we'd like to see something happen in North America, because right now it's not it, the big the big thing that China really dominates on is the the final manufacturing. So what happens with all the rare earths afterwards, after they're mined, after they're processed and turned into oxides or metals? China holds the monopoly on that end. And this is where North America, this is where Europe really has to get um, get their acts together and start, you know, taking some of that off, um, or start doing some of that work internally. And that's that's what we would like to see happen in North America, so that we could be a direct supplier from the mine site. To the end product stage, all within North America. We think that you know that has. Uh, we, we yeah we we just think that actually has more of a long term strategy that you know should could potentially work.
0: Okay, and give us give us for the audience who doesn't really know much about it. Uh, how does the contracting work with uh, rarers Ra- Ra- Is it kind of mark to market, or is it uh, you know longer term supply agreements, or how, how does that work?
1: A little bit of both. Um, if well, I kind of read the, the the Chinese news daily about rare earths, and it, se- it seems like they're all they're on a spot market almost. Uh, suppliers, you know, they will suppliers will wait until they can get a better price for their for their um, commodity. Um, end users will also wait until they can get a better price. So there's a little bit of that. Um, as far as long term, I actually don't know much too much about the market in that regard. To know if there are long term supplies, I could imagine that there are. Uh, you know, Tesla signed what a three year deal to with a Chinese company to be supplied with with permanent uh, magnets. Um, uh, Linus Corp and and Browns Range, um, they've they've got their own off take supplies to to feed to, to feed China as well and feed Japan. So, those are a little bit more long-term agreements as well. Um, Again, it it seems to be a mixture of both, I guess, uh, long-term and and on the spot.
0: Right. So, uh, you you know, we all know that Appia has both uranium and rare earth prospects. Do you see the uranium potential in the current environment for uranium uh, as kind of the bigger piece uh, for Appia at this point, or do you see both of these opportunities as kind of a 50-50?
1: We see them as a 50/50, for sure. It's, you know, we see uranium coming back, um, so that's again that's why we're going to focus on some of our uranium properties. Uh, last couple of years, it was just so depressed. Um, you know, I've told people this story. When I first joined Appia, um uranium was actually, you know, it was coming down, but it was still doing better than it was uh, back in 2017 and 2018. And so we'd go out and raise money, and nobody wanted to hear the the rare side of the story. Everyone just wanted to hear the uranium story. Shift focus to 2017. Nobody wanted to hear the uranium side of the story. They all wanted to hear the rare earth side of the story. So it's it is it, it's kind of a it's, it's a nice mixture of both. And you know, we're happy that we're we're focused on both. We're firm believers in both the uh, the rare earth and the uranium markets. Um, you know, uranium. I personally, I, I think uranium is the the energy source of the future. I, I don't think we should shy away from it at all. I, it's, it's a great energy source it's efficient it's green it's well it's just it's a wonderful source of energy there's no doubt
0: no I, I agree and and uh, I think people will start warming up to that to that fact and um, there's there's no doubt that there's some a good situation going forward and and uh, looking outside of the of the US and looking at other countries and the the rollout of, of, of nuclear construction projects and uh, the the supply demand fundamentals and the fact that it is. A very clean uh, form of energy, uh, very robust, uh, very bo- base load, obviously, and uh, quite honestly, probably, you know, everybody seems to forget it's very safe as well, and it, I think it trumps even, you know, how many people fall off roofs installing solar panels or uh, these wind turbine accidents, and and then let's not even talk about the, the space usage and the fact that. Uh, they're not 24/7 uh, base load power either, so there's there's a lot of things that are that are looking uh, quite good, and and certainly the the supply demand picture is probably the biggest key for for the audience, and and most most people really like that. But with that, we also get the upside of uh, participating in an industry that uh, is going to provide uh, really really uh, good power going forward. So I think it's a a great opportunity. Um, so on, on on the uranium side, uh, is there any businesses outside of Appia that you like that are in the uranium uh, uh, space at this point?
1: Well, obviously I think Appia is number one. There is no doubt about that. I think we've got the best. Uh, I think we have the best properties to actually make a discovery uh, with Elliott Lake. At the price ever does come up, Like I said it's uh, you know it's a back pocket play. Um, Appia, Appia is certainly my favorite company for sure. Uh, but if I had to go out and pick some others, I do like Energy Fuels. They do have that uranium vanadium. Uh, that co-play and just recently they they announced that they are starting to uh, to process some of their vanadium so you know, I, I think I think they've got some great assets I also really like uh, plateau uranium out in Peru um, I think that property has uh, I think it has the right makings the right jurisdiction to actually start moving forward as well and again even some of these African deposits you know they look like they they have the the makings of being able to move forward. But in the end of in the end of it all, what really matters to me is is the grade, and you're just not going to find that anywhere else except for in the Athabasca Basin. So, if you picture if you can picture something like an arrow being right at surface, you know that's that's a huge money maker.
0: Yeah, absolutely, um, and certainly with a team that can that can bring it out of the ground and, and go through all the steps, uh, you know, from from contracting to the geology, like where you're at, and and all of the all of the parts and pieces to make the uh, the machine work. Um, so on, on that on that subject, uh, Jim, what do you say to investors who see where uranium is going, but maybe find the developers or the producers in a better position to capitalize in the short term? Why, why should they look at explorers like Appia?
1: Because explorers are historically where most of the money has been made. Um, as soon as someone can make a, make a discovery, again, that's, um, what is it, the Lasan curve? If you look at the Lason curve of um, from exploration to production, you know, a junior has um, has relatively low share value. So again, you, you, you can probably get more more shares for your dollar in that sense, uh, with a discovery, and then your share prices just spike through the roof. So that's there's that incentive. It is a little bit riskier because nobody knows if you're going to, to actually make a discovery, but the potential payoff is is much better than being with a producer. Yes on on the short term to play it safe, a uh, producer is obviously the way, way to go and that's you know with any commodity that's typically the situation. So it's you know it's not wrong for for people to want to do that as well. But you know for for those who have no adverse side effects to to being a little bit riskier and to to playing a little bit more of uh, the market. Um, again, that's junior exploration is is the way to really, really make some high returns.
0: Yeah, yeah, I agree. And if you can put together these, the right sequence, put together, just get the timing right just a little bit, and uh, you know, come to a discovery in a rising uranium price or rare earth price environment, to where sentiment is improving, uh, et cetera, et cetera. I think that uh, you can really do well. And I think, I think on the other side of that, uh, I think a good example, recent example, would be, would be NextGen. NextGen was kind of, they did a discovery in a more or less a bear market for uranium. And I okay. think that uh, as a result, their share prices, uh, you weren't able to experience that full upside in a discovery type environment that you would otherwise experience in a rising uh, bull market and uh so i think i think it got cut short a little bit and and that's too bad but you know you can't always get the timing right but but certainly right now that the fundamentals are lining up uh, for these explorers especially the good ones that can really enjoy an impressive move higher so I, i i appreciate you clarifying that for for the folks who uh you know maybe have not considered that um so why should investors be taking a stake in Appia today? What would you say to the potential investors about the Appia proposition? For
1: Appia, again, it's well, we, we have the upside potential for making a uranium discovery. Um, that in itself would would warrant a uh, you know a, a price peak in our in our in our share price. Um, so there's there's potential money to be made in that. Uh, we have we also because we're an explorer in uranium, it's kind of funny. If, the price of uranium goes up uh most of the most of the people who are in that commodity also go up we you know it's this happened back in 2008 it's happened well it's I've noticed it since since I started in the in the business here um, the the companies follow the spot price if it goes up it goes up if it goes down they all go down so there there's the potential for for that uh, if everyone believes that the uranium spot price will continue to go up as I do believe then the explorers will also go up in that regards and therefore Appia will go up in that. Um, the discovery, Elliot uh, LA Elliott Lake, if if the uranium spot price keeps rising to you know even to forty dollars, then Elliott LA Lake now starts to look much more attractive. And again, that's you know, that's our back pocket play. Um it has the potential to to move forward at one day. So there's there's that. But then we've also got Alsa's Lake, so it's not just the uranium side of things, but on the rare earth side of things that we could actually move Alsace Lake into a small little production company relatively easily. And so there's there's that potential for not just having a world class deposit, a rare earth deposit, but also starting to be a, a rare earth producer on the global scale. So, you know, bringing in some sort of income for the company, I'm pretty sure will go a long way. So Appia has a lot of upside potentials and that's where you know, we see a lot of value for any shareholder getting into the company,
0: especially at this early stage. No, I appreciate the uh, the information on that. And it certainly is a good uh, situation for potential investors to be considering. Um, so what on, on the catalyst side for uranium price, uh, what do you see in the near term as maybe some catalysts that we need to kind of uh, experience and pass through in order for you know the uranium price to continue its upward momentum what what global events are you looking at at this point going forward that will help help to get this off the ground
1: I think a lot of it has already been put in play you know, especially with with camco and uh, and the Kazakhs really cutting their production I think that was you know probably the major catalyst that I could have happened to to start turning around this this industry um, with the Uh, With the with the commodities there, um, if they start if they start signing long term contracts again, that will breathe more life into the uranium space, and so uh, those contracts need to start being filled out. And from what I've read, uh, we're getting to that stage where this has to happen. So there's uh, again and still with with the builds in China um, that are planned. Uh, with those continuing and even in, in more developing countries again, they're all planning for, for nuclear builds. So there are a lot of catalysts that should uh should be happening. So again it's a matter of it's always just a matter of time.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think getting this two hundred thirty two off the desk is, is important so we can move on to the kind of the, the main event, so to speak, of the long term contracting. I think that's key and obviously the construction and the commissioning and the restarting um, of plants worldwide, uh, whether you're talking Japan or you're talking about China, new new builds or other other uh, you know projects uh, going on throughout the world, those are steadily coming online. Uh, and I think 2019 certainly has a an estimate of at least 10 plus uh, reactors uh, coming on, whether they're a mix of restarts or new build commissions. Yep. Um, so there's certainly a, a number of things that are moving uh, the ball forward. So, uh, uh, James, how can investors reach out to the company for more information?
1: Um, They can call the company directly. Um, They can talk to Frank or Tom at the company office. Uh, They're based out of Toronto. Myself, I'm based in Saskatoon. Uh, If you actually look at the news releases, my phone number is on there, as is the the companies and our emails are all on there. So, I'm accessible at any time. I can always be reached. And so, if somebody just wants to give a call or send an email, which is more preferable, um, you know, we'll, we'll always be happy to answer. Um, if somebody wants to send an email directly to the Appia company, it's appia at appiaenergy.ca. Okay, and, uh, and the website? www.appiaenergy.ca. You know, it was just something else that was playing around in my mind here. Uh, as far as as far as where the uranium market can go um you know this is this is a personal opinion of mine, but I really do think that small modular reactors have a place in the future market, and I think that will actually really help grow uh just the whole uranium downstream processing and just and and and, and user capabilities and and more uh applications for uranium so i think i think what what the uranium industry needs is for everything that we talked about to come online, but I think we also need um, just some sort of little new innovation to bring out, uh, to bring up more application. That's where I think these small, these SMRs uh, have their place in the future.
0: Yes, I, I agree, and, and we uh, we had a, a discussion with New Scale uh, Power, which is out of Oregon, Oregon-based company that seems yep. to be at least in the NRC world, has the most advanced uh, application process for uh, SMRs in the United States. And, and of course, uh, if you can get the NRC stamp of approval, you can pretty much walk to any other country and, and get, get stuff moving quite quickly. And so I, I agree with you 100%. The SMR space is quite impressive. The capital and the backers uh, in that space yep. is is only increasing and uh, it's quite impressive the safety improvements already an impeccable safety record that already exists in the industry in my view, uh, oh, yeah. but even even better making it even even more foolproof, uh, quite impressive. So yeah, I agree with you 100%. And I think uh, in these advanced nations that you know maybe like the U.S. or even a Canada who uh, maybe not building a ton of new conventional reactors, I think SMRs will be the new. Conventional reactor going forward. Uh, so yeah, absolutely. I appreciate your comments on that. Well, well, Jim, thanks for coming on, and 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 thanks for telling us about Appia, and, and good luck.
1: Thank you very much, Andrew. I hope to I hope we get to do another uh, commentary later
0: on.